My name is Hayley Jane Sims and you are listening to Your Manchester Stories. Christine Burns, MBE, campaigned for a quarter of a century for the civil rights of transgender people and has been involved with the community for more than 40 years. She was a leading figure in the trans rights campaign, Press for Change, for 15 years, building trans community self-awareness and working on new employment legislation and the Gender Recognition Act. Christine wrote the first ever official guidance about trans health for the Department of Health and led for some years on challenging negative reporting in the media. As an independent diversity specialist, she chaired the Northwest Equality and Diversity Group for three years and helped countless organisations develop equality plans, including a five-year stint as the programme manager for equality, inclusion and human rights at NHS Northwest. Joining me today is Paul Marks-Jones, equality, diversity and inclusion partner at the university. Uh, Christine, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Um, If we could start at the very beginning, can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up? Confession time. I was born in Essex. I grew up for my first nine years, uh, about 15 miles east of the the city of London, a place called Ilford and Goodmays. And then when I was about nine, my parents decided to up sticks and move to the other side of the river. And I did the rest of my growing up in the Medway towns, which is on the north coast of Kent. And then uh, I, you know, it came to time to come to university and I, I came here to Manchester. And what, why Manchester? Was there any particular thing that drew you here? Do you know, the, the simple transactional reason is because I had a two E's offer. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. Um, well, that was one of the factors. I, I, was, yeah. I was told once I got two E's, I couldn't hold any other offers. So, so that was, you know, if I was, if I was going to come to Manchester, that was it. Um, but no, seriously, the other reason was that I'd already read that Manchester was such an important place in the history of the development of, uh, of electronic computers. Uh, and, I look, and it also had, uh, it was about to have a much larger department than anybody else as well. There are other universities around that had maybe 15 or 20 in their intake. And Manchester, because uh, in 1972, we were opening a a big new computer centre here, uh, for the first time ever had an intake of 60 students. So that sounded like something to be good at. And also it was far enough away from home that I couldn't possibly have the temptation of running back at the weekend. And I think that I, I think that was probably the best part of the decision, actually. But apart from you know, studying in one of the best places in the world, I, to I appreciate that reason. <laughs> <laughs> so, have you always been interested in computer and computer science? Um, yeah, well, um, I I got interested at the end of my O level year um, at school because you know that the, the school has to sort of hang on to you till the end of term. And you've done your you've done your O level exams, and what else are they going to do? So one of the, one of our maths teachers had learned a little bit of a uh, programming language called Fortran, uh, and made a liaison with a local technical college, and he taught us um, how to program, and we could uh, we could write our programs on these uh, these uh, stenciled coding sheets, which he'd put in the post and we'd send off. Wow. <laughs> and they'd come back, the programme hadn't run, they'd just been typed by somebody onto paper tape. And then we'd proofread that they typed it correctly. And if that was okay, he would write on the top of the listing, um, please, please run. And then it would go back and the, 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 the programme would be checked by the computer, which would find our errors. 
and it would come back with, uh, with a list of things we got wrong. So we'd put that right and we'd send it off again and this time it would run. So even though it was incredibly slow and very tedious, uh, I was fascinated by this because I, up till that point, I hadn't really been sure what I was going to do. Mm. And I, I came from a, a family, nobody had ever gone to university. And my parents thought that I was just going to go and work in local industry or a shop or something um, and had to be persuaded that I could go to university. Uh, so suddenly I had a reason to go and something to study. And uh, then I got time off uh, from the head teacher from, uh, from games afternoons because I was hopeless at games. Uh, and I'd just learned to drive. So I took my dad's uh, car and uh, an, an an accomplice, I nearly said, a friend, <laughs> um, on, on Wednesday afternoons up to the technical college where we got more hands-on. We could actually go and actually touch the computer and put the paper tapes in ourselves. And uh, so it became more and more fascinating. So by the time you know, it came to picking universities, I was absolutely, you know, really understood what it was that I was getting into. So were they quite happy with you, like coming to Manchester in the end and studying? Uh, yes, they were. Having got past that sort of that that, that assumption that I was going to get, take a particular path and realizing that I could do these other things, and it and it wasn't going to cost them money either, because in those days we all got full maintenance grants mm. and uh, and our fees were paid by the local authority. So it was uh, it was wonderful. But I got I got by my first year in 1972-73 on £450. Wow. <laughs> and that's, my accommodation was £72 a term. So... I'm at, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> speech. What's I, know, I know. And I managed to save as well. <laughs> so thinking about your uh, coming out story, did, this, did you come out um, when you came to university or was um, it before that? I, I suppose you could say I started coming out to myself. Mm. Um, I'd known how I felt uh, as a, I mean, I didn't have word for it. I knew how I felt when I was four years old. I remember sitting under the table one Tuesday afternoon when my mum was out doing the ironing. I know it's Tuesday because Monday was washing, Tuesday was okay. ironing. And, uh, and I, I said that I, well, actually at the time, because I'd seen a, a policewoman on Dixon of Dot Green, I wanted to be a police lady. Um, and she sort of tried to um, disabuse me of that idea, but it was there and, uh, more and more, um, I, re I re realised immediately it was something I couldn't discuss further with my parents because they just laughed at me and, uh, and it wasn't something you were going to tell anybody right. else. So I went through school keeping it to myself as a secret, but, but knowing it. I remember vividly when I was about 12 years old, uh, my parents in those days had a pub. So I had a lot of time over Sunday lunchtime because they were serving customers and I'd gone and got the, the newspapers and I was kneeling on the carpet in the kitchen, um, reading the news of the world, because my dad got the news of the world and the Sunday Mirror in those days. And I was reading about somebody called April Ashley. And in that moment, so I so I was about 12 years old in 1966, I knew that there was a name for people like me. And again, it was really not a good thing to be. So when I, when I arrived at university, I had the space and the time to explore that further, mm -hmm. um, but still not really anybody I could talk to. Um, there was the beginnings of a gay movement in the university in those days. I remember, uh, what, it was 72 or 73, that somebody ran 
a, uh, a a campaign where people would come to come to university in jeans on a Friday if they if they were gay, which of course was a complete wind up to the entire <laughs> student body, um, and uh, yeah, it was it was really quite homophobic. I remember being warned off what would become. Um, uh, Canal Street. Okay. Uh, in those days, there was nothing on Canal Street except bedsteads in the canal, mm. and there was a um, what do you call it? A, a bunny club actually at the end of uh, Canal Street, where, where one of the restaurants now is. Okay. But that's all there was. What's so the bunny club? Uh, from the um, Playboy magazine. Oh, I see. Oh, right. I see. Okay. Yeah. Right. So that was. So it's a different sort of clientele. Yeah. yeah. And it was regarded. It was very much part of the, the red light district of Manchester mm. in those days. So yeah, there was nowhere to go. Nobody, nobody could talk to, um, and there was a gay sock. Mm. But then I didn't associate how I felt with being gay. Um, I, I understood that you know our our common interests a lot later, but uh, it was something that again I sort of kept 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 quiet until mm. in my third year um, we uh, moved out of Hall into a house in Cheatham Hill, mm -hmm. which in those days was a terrible mistake because nobody would come and see us. No students would go north of Market Street. Uh, we had a party and nobody came, oh. and but uh, it was time when I was able to discover that there was a support group that had not long sprung up uh, in Higher Broughton on Camp Street. <laughs> and uh, that's why I can never forget the name. Of course not. And uh, so that was the first time I met somebody like me. Okay. So it was a case of sort of struggling through, um, not feeling there was anybody I could talk to. So um, when you found... Um this support group, was it a significant point of your um, life-changing for you? Well, it told me a lot of things. For instance, it was the very first time I'd ever met a trans man um, who, as it turned out, would later go on to be a colleague of mine as a campaigner, um, but I didn't know that at the time. And the impression was this was a very old, slightly damp Victorian house on Camp Street, and... Um, it was in a back room on a Wednesday evening and you were sort of knocked on the door and somebody would come and let you in. And uh, and the, seat, the, the settee had springs coming out of it and there was tea out of cracked mugs. And it was all a little bit, um, it had the feeling of being a little bit shady. Mm. Um, and so um, it was something that I thought, oh my God, you know, if this is what it is, then, you know, I hope I'm gonna run away from this. And that's what I was trying to do. Um, a bit later, um, when I graduated and then stayed on to do a re, uh, a, an MSc, um, I went to the, what was then the Student Health Centre uh, on Booth Street. And the shocking thing there was that they very quickly said, oh, OK, yes, we'll send you to a specialist in Withington. Um, and actually finding that I'd met doctors who weren't, you know, weren't going to try and talk me out of being mm -hmm. trans and actually wanted to help me. That was even more scary then. So, so I, so at the end, it cut a long story short um, and my uh, academic career short. Um, I felt that eventually to run away from all of this, uh, I needed to, to give up my PhD. Mm -hmm. And to much to the surprise of everybody, um, I left and tried to get, I went and got a job in, in industry. Um, with a sort of, uh, 
secret deal with myself that if I got this job, then I was going to you know, have another start, you know, because obviously all this stuff, uh, this development of me as a, as, a, as, a, as a trans person was all associated with the five years I was here at Manchester. Um, so hopefully, if I, you know, by rebooting my life, uh, maybe I could uh, could start again and forget all that and just get on with being uh, yeah, in, in industry. It doesn't work. No. But, uh... So did you find that during your time at Manchester, the support was increasing year on year? Uh, I find that very difficult to say yes to because yeah. I think the predominant reaction of student body to the growth of a, um, a, a queer community in the university, and we're talking about 1972 to 77 in my case, uh, was the way that the rest of the world was outside. Um, it was, you know, they were still talking about queers and, uh, and, and, you know, and jokes about gay men and so on. So, uh, no, I mean that communicated to the uh, to feeling that that's why I couldn't talk to my um, uh, supervisors either that uh, who were very much lads lads um, that if I came out and said how I felt then I wouldn't be able to continue anyway uh, and I and while I was hanging on to my academic career um, you know I liked what I was doing I enjoyed. Uh, I, I, I've, I've said to other young people since, when they're thinking about coming to university, that you really need to be doing something where you wake up in the morning, you spring out of bed and you want to go and learn and do things. And that's how I felt. So uh, it was no light decision to, to run away from that. And once you'd left Manchester, did you find that the, the process was, was easier for, for coming out or exploring uh, that? Still no, because no. there, no there was nowhere obvious to go. There were no role models. The only, the only role model I'd found was in 1974 when I was still here was um, a, a Times journalist called Jan Morris um, who had transitioned, uh, well, she'd spent about 12 years transitioning. Um, she wrote a book called, uh, called Conundrum about her experience. This will give you a clue. And then, I mean, I had access, obviously, to the university library, but rather than go there and try to borrow the book, I, there, was a, there was a city library in the, uh, in the precinct centre, and I went and joined that just so I could book out a copy of Conundrum because it was the sort of thing where you felt that, why, you know, if you're asking for that book, why do you want it? You know, people are going to ask questions. But I was fascinated. I just devoured the book inside a day and then I read it again um, and so there was that kind of role model there, were, there was obviously the press coverage of somebody uh, of April Ashley who mm. I've mentioned before uh, and I'd met these people in a sport group but uh, that was all there was really there wasn't there wasn't any possibility model really um, and looking at April and uh, Jan um, yeah they, they seem to be completely different sorts of people, you know, a top journalist, a travel writer, um, a socialite in the case of April Ashley, beautiful, uh, and I was pretty ordinary. <laughs> and, uh, so I thought, yeah, and they've both gone off to Casablanca to, to achieve gender reassignment. And in the early 70s, none of us went abroad, except maybe on a student travel card, 
but it was, you know, you didn't go, you didn't fly off to North Africa to, to find a surgeon um, who, and you'd only, who you only knew his name and, uh, and then put yourself under the knife in a completely strange country. You know, no, sorry, that's something that another exotic kind of species does. No, I'm too ordinary, I thought. But yeah, I, I went off to this company uh, in, uh, to, to work for them. And within about four months, uh, the work had actually brought me back to living in Manchester. Um, so then I, I had a longer association with the support group, uh, but still not, telling, not being able to tell anybody I knew how I felt. Mm. So it was, yeah, I, I, this is why I think it's so important that people have uh, you know, visibility of trans people these days and a diversity of trans people as well. So they can identify, hopefully, somebody like themselves rather than just somebody like me or somebody like you know, some of the other famous trans people there are. Of course. And was there one, can you recall if there was one like moment where you decided to start the, the process of transitioning? Uh, yeah, well, I, I, do you know, I had several goes. I think my first go was actually before I left. Uh, and this was the thing that um, pushed me into, into leaving, was that you know, with the, the health centre behind me, it was a sort of crunch decision time and I wasn't ready for it because I didn't see how I could possibly survive. I, would, I thought I would be rejected by my friends in the university. Uh, I couldn't see, and to go from doing something like that to probably having to do a scraping by job um, just to survive uh, didn't, you know, that seemed so blooming scary that I just couldn't contemplate it. And then uh, two or three years later, I had another sort of go at nearly transitioning. And then it was a little bit later again that I finally got to the point where, and I'd come out to my parents by this point as well, and they, you know, they, they didn't reject me as I, th I assumed they would. Uh, and that on that third attempt, um, yeah, I, I went for it. So it, it takes, yeah, and, and without, without anything to rely on, it takes quite a long time. You have to be mature enough to, 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 to be able to say, I don't care what happens. I'm going to go for this and we'll, I'll make it work. Hmm. So. Okay, thank you. And you ended up kind of going into business, you had a, a business IT consultancy career. But you also campaigned at the same time. Like, how, how did the, how did you get involved in actually campaigning for trans rights? And how do you how do you how did you? Well, that? well, at first there was no campaigning. Um, um, I've written in one of my books uh, that that for about twenty five years the only thing that existed in Britain was support groups. Uh, a group called the Beaumont Society had been set up in nineteen sixty six, and then there was this Manchester group in the early seventies, and it was something. So very similar in London um, and something over in Leeds. Um, and there was no, no, people felt that they just had to be able to advise each other how to survive rather than saying, you know, there's we ought to be able to do something about this. And the reason for that was because I don't think anybody could actually see how on earth you change it. You, look, you looked at the way that the, the press dealt with trans people uh, and yeah, it was all, it was a freak show. You know, the, the only interest that the press had um, for about 20 years in trans people 
was as somebody to to write about in the Sunday papers and the Sunday papers, you know, the Sunday tabloids were all about you know titillating people. Um, and if somebody didn't come forward, then they'd go and out them. And 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 so and that's that's the model it had. So we knew that that was a terrible position to be in. And nobody thought, well, how what else could you do? Could you go to your MP? Well, no, no, no. MPs just wouldn't touch us with a barge pole. So. You know, what other levers have you got to change the status quo when it feels like the entire uh, society is against you? And then along came uh, this trans man called Mark, Mark Reese, and he, in the early uh, 80s, started the process of taking um, our government to the European Court of Human Rights because, uh, particularly, he felt that he had no um, access to privacy which is uh, Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights, because if you wanted to go and get a job, then quite, for quite a lot of jobs, you'd have to present a birth certificate, and that immediately outed you. And it's amazing how good employers could be, even if they really had previously wanted to employ you. On discovering you were trans, they could come up with all sorts of excuses. Oh, I'm sorry, the jobs no longer exist, and so on. Mm. Um, and the other one, of course, was that uh, he couldn't marry. Um, and, well... The government would have offered, uh, argued that he could because in their eyes he was a woman and therefore he could marry a man. So ironically, in the mid-1980s, around the time we were working up towards Section 28, um, we had a government was arguing in the European Court of Human Rights that uh, Mark could uh, yeah, solemnise a marriage uh, which was essentially, essentially a same-sex marriage. But that wasn't for him. He wanted, he wanted to, to, to marry a woman mm -hmm. if he was going to do it at all. So those are, those are the basis for his arguments. Um, and it obviously pricked a lot of interest because of the issues that he was raising. Um, and uh, he didn't win, um, but he got the conversation started. And then a couple of years after him, uh, a trans woman who was a, um, a hostess on a TV game show and also a model um, by the name of Caroline Cossey, um, she had had a similar experience. Uh, she Her modelling career had collapsed because she'd been outed by uh, uh, the, the News of the World. And that had resulted in her... She was engaged to be married and the marriage fell through and she couldn't marry. Uh, and so she took a very similar case to Mark to the court. And the court, again, listened to almost identical evidence of the kind of um, you know, things that mitigated against trans people um, and even in those two or three short years thinking had moved forward enough that uh, the court nearly found on her side but um, but they didn't uh, but um, but certainly what that said to everybody was that this was a way perhaps of eventually turning that around because the thing that had happened in court and had happened nowhere else in society was that uh, the plight of trans people had been listened to and that you know, facts mattered and that people said, you know, that yeah, this is egregious, this is unfair. If we, if we believe in human rights, then you know, this, these people's human rights are not being upheld. Um, and so... There was the op opening then for somebody to set up an activist organisation and uh, uh, another uh, trans man in around about 
1990, got together with Mark and they, they met with um, a, um, the Liberal Democrat Home Affairs spokesman at the time, as, uh, who is now Lord Alex Carl Carlisle, QC, and he said, uh, you know, you need to form a, a campaign organisation. And he was very prescient because he said to them, um, you, it's, this isn't going to be fast. Um, because even my colleagues in in Parliament, you know, wouldn't touch you with a with with a barge pole, but um, you can work at this and look for other uh, legal cases you can bring, and gradually we'll get this conversation going. Maybe it'll take about ten years. Now he said that in 1992, and we won uh, our landmark case in the European Court of Human Rights in 2002. So he was he was pretty spot on. And so as a result of that, um, Stephen and Mark and some others got together in a cafe opposite, uh, which is now where Portcullis House is uh, in Westminster. Uh, so that's where all the, the, the MPs have their offices and meeting rooms. And uh, decided they would set up an, um, a campaign group. And the question was, well, what, we should, what should we call it? And people kept saying, you know, we've got to press for change. We've got to press for change. And also... Um, it was a, there was a quite common perception that the press was part of the problem. So calling it Press for Change just, just clicked uh, and I got involved with it about a year later. And uh, so that's how I, I came into activism. And you've seen all that change for, for trans people all throughout that time and you've been at the forefront of it. Well, how do you see the future kind of for trans people? Uh, well... So far, uh, between then and, let us say, about 2015, I would say it had been very rosy. It was all looking up remar remarkably well. You know, we didn't, we didn't win all of our legal cases, but we won the majority of them. And the, 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 the arc we were on, the, uh, the graph, was, was all pointed upwards. Um, we obviously had the Gender Recognition Act in 2004, uh, and less uh, loudly sung achievements after that as well. I was working with the Department of Health and setting up policy for how to deal with trans people as both patients and as staff. Uh, we were trying to challenge the press to think about you know, what they were doing and so on. Um, and then we also started to get more and more trans people into the media as well in terms of you know, acting in soap operas, particularly we'd had... Uh, the, the, the character of Hayley Patterson in Coronation Street, uh, who, although she's not a trans woman in real life, uh, she played one really well. And actually her, her plot um, resulted in forcing the, the government to, uh, to, to initiate a, a working group to look at the, uh, how the law should be changed. So I think you know, her relationship with Coronation Street went, went mm. really well. Um, and it was still going upwards, you know, in 2014, there was the character in uh, Orange is the New Black and there were characters in uh, EastEnders and Hollyoaks and, uh, you know, doing other things as well. We were becoming more and more visible. Uh, and I uh, sort of retired from the fray in 2007 because I, I think it's really important for any sort of social movement to be able to keep itself renewed and refreshed. And we were all really tired. We'd done 12 years getting to where we were, and it was time to, to give young people an opportunity 
And I think young people are in the trans community are very different to how we were because they grew up without all the stigma. They've, they've got a belief in themselves that uh, they have a right to get yeah, to place to a place at the table. These things should be unremarkable. Um, coming from my generation, where we were you know, grateful not to be not to be sacked and put put out on our ear, um, we, I suppose we approached the world a little bit more apologetically. But you know, if we're if we're very really, really nice to you, could you just you know, sort out these rights for us? Um, so it was time to change, and they were they were making ground as well. And then we had almost from out of the blue in twenty sixteen the beginnings of the current backlash, um, which is all founded on a series of lies. And the more we dig into it now, we're beginning to really understand how it's connected with what has happened in wider uh, Western politics, particularly in the US, which is funding a lot of it, um, and in the UK, which is just you know, a mini-me of what's happening in, um, in, in America. Um, so we're, we're living through that at the moment. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm a student of other um, you know, social outsiders other, and, and other minority groups. And if you look at the history of all of them, it's never a straight line. Um, and occasionally you have these reverses, you have these corrections, as they would say in economics. Um, but the, the general you know, course is always onwards and upwards. And I think we're actually beginning to see already a turn uh, because what happens with these kinds of movements against uh, what is you know, genuinely good and right is that they tend to, they, they're the sort of people who will eat each other anyway uh, and they overextend each other. And eventually, although they may con people in the, uh, the chattering classes to, uh, to go along with them, uh, it begins to become apparent very quickly that they've associated themselves with um, people who are going to damage their reputation. And so slowly, you know, this support dwindles away. And so I think that, you know, I, I, I'm not going to put a time on it, whether it's one year or two years, but I think we will see you know, this, this moment in time come to an end um, sooner rather than later, I think. Yeah, I really hope so. Um, let's talk about Manchester a little bit. Because mm. obviously you grew up down south, you came yes. to Manchester, you had this um, career where you jetted around the world and things like that, but Manchester's always been the place that you kind of gravitate to. Yes, and that's, I, do you know, it's almost spiritual because the very first day I came to Manchester, October the 2nd, 1972, and, you know, I, I can't remember what I had for lunch, but I can remember these dates for some reason. Um, I dumped my bags at my Hall of Residence and I went out for a walk. And I walked up Oxford Road um, and I just had a feeling, almost from the pavement, sort of coming up towards me and feeling, I've come home. And I thought, well, that's, yeah, daft. You, you know, you've just left home and you're making new friends and it's a different life now. You're, you're, you're becoming an adult. Uh, maybe that's it. And I, I really thought that when I got to the end of my third year and graduated, I thought, well, you know, all the people now are going away and I'm staying to do a, a, a master's. Maybe it will feel different when the place is sort of empty and I'm having to you know, look in it a different way. But I still felt the same way. And although later 
I did move away um, a little bit. Um, I had that quick flirtation with the South and then came back up here and, uh, and then ended up for a while uh, out in mid-Cheshire. Um, but about 20 years ago, um, I think almost by chance, I ended up coming back to Manchester and buying a house, which I hadn't planned to buy. I remember it was, um, it was the, uh, the 2nd of January 2000. So we just, we'd, we'd got through the millennium without the world ending. And I'd been shopping uh, at, the, at the Trafford Centre and I was driving back out of town and I stopped and I saw a sign for a, 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 a housing development. And I usually hate going around show houses and things, but I thought, oh, I'm going to look at that. But at the time I was thinking of buying maybe a flat in London because I travelled a lot and it would be handy to have another base. And I uh, went into this site and I walked around the, the show house. And again, it was love at first sight. And that was a Sunday. And the following Friday, I came back with my checkbook and wrote a check for the deposit. And I impulse bought a house. <laughs> um, and so that was sort of ineffectively then saying, OK, you know, now I'm here for good. Because I don't foresee... Uh, my, my parents used to say this when they when they finally arrived at their last house. You know, well, this is it. You know, you know I'll only be leaving you know, horizontally, <laughs> and and they did. Um, so you know, I, I've, I'm in a place which I feel really comfortable with, and uh, and everything else then sort of gels into place. Yeah, you know, I've got all these wonderful things in Manchester around us. I don't use most of them. It's a bit like Londoners saying, oh, well, you could, I could never move out of London because we've got all the theatres and everything else. When did you last go to the theatre? Oh, it must have been five years ago. Um, it's just, it's the same for me. You know, I, uh, my, my life revolves between the house and Tesco's and, <laughs> and, and, and a trip to Altrincham for the hairdressers now and then. So, um, but I just, I, I, I just love Manchester because I think it's the right size for a city it's got all it's got the aspiration and the can-do-ness and as I grew up as an activist I also learned its history you know it's fantastic history in terms of um of uh yeah, gay history uh, and the, you know, the, the the formulation of what eventually became the sexual offenses act of 1967 um so I I'm very uh and it's just it, it's got such an open and open outlook and I think yeah, I'm proud of the university as well. I always was Im impressed that it was a university which, with Salford and UMIST, was, I think, the biggest student campus in Europe, and I think it still is. Um, and I knew that I was in a department where one of my professors had keyed the very first computer program into the very first stored program computer just down the road from here. Um, so, yeah, why would I ever want to go anywhere else? And when you come back to the university, have you seen, like, a heightened awareness for, for trans um, students? Trans yeah, staff? but only, only from the outside. I've not talked much to the students, mm. um, but I've certainly over the last couple of years I've been aware because of social media that there's a, there's a good, strong student body of, 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 of trans mm -hmm. people and, and non-binary people and... Uh, all of that, really, and I think it's just sort of, it's it's part of the um, the, the landscape in a way that it wasn't uh, you know, in, in my in my time, and I think that's absolutely fabulous. Yeah, and so 
What, from your experience, what advice would you give to, to these students or anyone that might be, be listening in today? Oh, goodness. Well, I think it comes in, in, in two levels. First, you know, just general advice to students, what I said before, um, what, which is that I think, ide- you know, apart from the fact that you know, it's a great time to have a lot of fun as an undergraduate uh, and never play that down, but be studying something that you are absolutely passionately interested in. Because I can't think of anything... Yeah, that student, being a student these days financially in particular, has a lot of downsides. You're, you know, you're going to end up with a, a humongous debt. So um, yeah, if you're going to come to study in any university, then make sure it's for something you passionately want to do. Um, I don't know what advice to give to students in terms of their either their sexual orientation or their gender identity, except to, I guess... Um, there's a temptation when you're young to want to rush at things. Um, and I think that, and I, I begin to sound like that old person when I say this, but actually there are advantages to taking your time to, to, to know yourself and to build up the resources and the, and the confidence and the knowledge to be able to, particularly for trans people, to take, I think, one of the biggest steps that any human being can take. Um, it's, it's not easy, even now, to, to transition. Uh, it perhaps, it's, perhaps it's even harder, I don't know. Um, so, yeah, I think my, my experienced eye is to say, you know, just take it a step at a time. Um, you used to have a saying in computer science, you know, is how, how do projects get to be late and it's one day at a time? And I think the same reversed for trans people is, you know, how do you get to being a transitioned, confident, happy person? Again, it's one day at a time. Okay, thank you. So one last question for you. We asked this on your Manchester stories. So we're going to give you £50 mm-hmm. and you're going to have access to our time machine if you'd like it. Um, where or what time in Manchester would you go? Um, do you know, I thought about that, and I think I would definitely like to go back to 1948. I would like to go to Coupland Street, and I would like to step up quietly behind um, Tom Kilburn and the other team and the rest of the team um, who were you know, applying power to this thing they called the baby, and. Um, actually you know, thinking that this is a machine where you could actually do what, um, uh, I've forgotten his name, Turing, Alan Turing had described theoretically to be able to, to you know, effectively to solve any problem if you just could reduce it to a number of steps. And yeah, I would like to see that momentous moment. I was uh, taught by him in my first year and I saw the light in his eyes because he taught us about how you know, exactly how the, 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 that computer worked. And to sort of describe that moment, and I suppose you could sort of realise that even at that moment, it's a moment of history, that you're actually going to make this machine work and you're going to put in this programme, which was to prove that 19 was a prime number. Um, so I'd love to have watched that. Thank you so much, Christina. I think we could, we could talk to you all day. <laughs>
Right, amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Your Manchester Stories. Please rate, review and subscribe or follow this podcast wherever you listen. If you are a graduate of the University of Manchester, you can connect with us at your.manchester.ac.uk. This podcast is produced by Kate Bradbury and Haley jane Sims on behalf of the Division of Development and Alumni Relations at the University of Manchester. The music for this podcast was supplied by Blue Dot Sessions.